the judicial branch, its force in our system is the protection of the rule of law, which can only be done by essentially the consent of the governed. It can only be done if people in our society believe, decide, and agree that they're going to follow what it is that courts decide. And so one of the reasons why um, having a diverse judicial branch is important is because it lends and bolsters public confidence in our system. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That clip from Justice Jackson, now the first Black woman to be appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court, speaks to some of the important considerations that we're all facing today as we reflect on the role of the Supreme Court after one of its most intense and decisive terms in recent history. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, July 5th. Hope people had a happy Independence Day, certainly a troubling one for anyone looking at what was happening in Illinois or how we, those who have friends and family impacted by the violence there, as we continue to see gun violence impact all of our communities. Um, But before we come to gun violence, I want to talk about the Supreme Court, because last week the U.S. Supreme Court concluded what many, including myself, would say has really been a devastating term. Newly empowered, far-right majority on the court just took major decisions impacting so many areas of our life, abortion rights, gun control, separation between church and state, environmental regulations, tribal sovereignty. It was a very intense and perhaps one of the most historic terms of the U.S. Supreme Court in recent memory. Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson was officially sworn in as the next Supreme Court justice after Stephen Breyer's retirement took effect last week. So some glimmers of hope and really questions that, you know, her um, her testimony during her appointment really make us question, is this a Supreme Court that represents the United States today? When we think about how so many of the current justices ended up on the court, the dynamics of the Republican Senate stalling Obama nominations, accelerating Trump nominations to lead to this moment, and then to get the set of decisions we've had over these last few weeks really makes one question and wonder about the legitimacy of our judicial system. And I want to make sure to take time right now to talk about not just the big, we talked about Roe v. Wade last week, but to talk about the EPA decision, we'll talk about some of these other decisions, but also how the overall direction of the court is really changing and some things particularly related to democracy. So Last week, the Supreme Court granted a Republican petition to hear a case out of North Carolina that's really, I think, one of the more troubling ones we've seen coming new onto the court's docket. This is a review of what has been generally considered a pretty radical legal theory, the independent state legislature doctrine. So the idea that the state legislature has the authority within its own powers to decide how to manage a federal election and that not even the state court or the governor could have any role in overturning what a state legislature does. Up until now, it's been a fringe constitutional theory. It's been thrown out even by Trump attorneys attempting to overturn the election when they use this independent 
state legislative doctrine. They were laughed out of courts all over the country. But now the Supreme Court, which doesn't have to agree to hear a case, they only hear about 80 cases out of like 7,000 that are brought to them every year, has decided that they want to listen to this petition. And so it really is a signal that there could be some very, very serious uh, damage to the basic checks and balances of how we regulate federal elections if they decide in favor of this uh, theory. They also have agreed to hear a case, Merrill versus Milligan, which is about voting rights uh, in Alabama, another place where the court has continued to kind of chip away at the Voting Rights Act. In February, um, it's important to remember that actually the Supreme Court got involved in this Alabama case via what's called its shadow docket, where orders are unsigned and there's no real rationale or reason generally given, but the Supreme Court reinstated the Alabama map vacating a lower court decision that said that the map violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, This has also happened in Louisiana, where on Tuesday the Supreme Court granted an emergency application and reinstated the blocked map of the congressional map in Louisiana. So these types of cases show a rising kind of activism from the conservative court to issue decisions on their shadow docket, basically let things go until they rule. That means that in addition, Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, all holding elections this year under maps that a court, when examining the facts, ruled that they were likely violating the Voting Rights Act or a state constitution, but because the court system is slow to move, these damages are being done. So you've got some both long-term concerns as well as some short-term implications of kind of the dynamics of the new conservative court impacting our democracy. The other I think that's really important for all of us to pay attention to, obviously the EPA decision saying that the EPA does not have the ability to regulate carbon because it was not specifically delegated to it by the Congress has a huge impact on climate, but it's also the long-term implication for what it means about this type of conservative Supreme Court on the powers of the federal government overall. So we have to remember like, you know, the in just the past few months, the court prevented the CDC from enforcing an eviction moratorium for COVID, prevented OSHA from enforcing a vaccine mandate. Now the EPA, there's other cases that are coming up on the docket. And these have really been this back and forth tension of the deference to the federal government that says when a particular piece of law isn't clear, there's a deference to interpretation by the agency to implement the law. So like the EPA is saying there's not clarity if we're allowed to do this or not. So we are doing what is our charge to regulate the environment. Instead, this more conservative court is coming back to a different side, what's using called the major questions doctrine, where they're saying if you don't have specific delegation of authority, then you can't take especially sweeping actions, but you can't take action because of a deference or a a requirement to make some type of implementation decisions if the Congress didn't tell you to do so. And even more extreme, like that independent states doctrine that I mentioned before, which is a really extreme theory coming out of conservative, fringe conservative circles that could undermine federal election regulation, is a very extreme non-delegation doctrine that says that Congress cannot delegate to the executive branch any powers in the Constitution given to Congress. Now, if we ended up seeing this new court go down the non-delegation doctrine route, basically that means administrative agencies can't make regulations. They have to like pass every regulation through Congress. And we know that we have such a big and complicated country. But what that means is we will often see no regulation at all. So some real big questions for the survival of our kind of functioning democracy to the extent it functions right now 
an administrative state given the kind of newly empowered conservative Supreme Court really brings some big questions for us of what does the coming years look like. When we look a little bit closer to home, last thing I want to talk about today is, you know, primary season. We've been talking about these last few weeks. We've had some very busy primaries this past uh, Tuesday, as I mentioned. Uh, last week was June's busiest primary day. Big primaries. Well, recorded the podcast early in the morning, so didn't have the chance to talk about it. But mixed bag, you saw some, you know, very conservative far right candidates winning elections, primaries in Oklahoma, Mississippi, South Carolina, even in Illinois, although in Illinois, it's an interesting question because like the governor was pushing very hard, the Democratic governor pushing to get the more conservative Republican opponent to be elected in the Republican primary, which is what happened because I think it'll be easier to beat. I will say I was taking away one piece of, or two pieces of good news from last Tuesday on the primary front. Tina Peters, who has been indicted on 10 charges of election misconduct in her county role of being a county clerk in Colorado in 2020, was thankfully defeated very handily by Pam Anderson in the Republican primary in Colorado. So a woman who is barred from actually overseeing her own county elections again is not going to get to have the chance to potentially oversee the Colorado election system. So that is a reassuring piece. The other, you might not have seen it, but in Washington, D.C., residents from prison actually had the chance to vote because the District of Columbia became the third place in the country to restore voting rights to all incarcerated individuals. So returning that right to people to vote, which I'm always uh, in support of overall. Um, looking forward, uh, it's going to be a quiet July. You know, the only primaries in the month of July in the U.S. are in Maryland on July 19th. The big question there is if Democrats are gunning to replace term-limited Republican Governor Larry Hogan, and so who will be the Democratic nominee who is the odds-on favorite to be take over that governorship and switch it back from a moderate Republican to a Democrat in a very Democratic state. But the primary season will be fiercely underway all of July because we've got a bunch of big August primaries. A bunch of battlegrounds, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, plus 10 other states will all have their primaries in August. So while we're going to have quiet the next couple of weeks, despite a lot of battling happening in states, uh, we'll have lots of news in the beginning and middle of August. And then there's only five states left after August with their primaries. Up in the Northeast, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Delaware, and Rhode Island all have their primaries in September. And of course, Louisiana, which has its own jungle primary election, which is, happens on Election Day in November. If you don't win a majority, then they go to runoffs afterwards. So we'll be kind of not talking as much about primaries the next few weeks. We'll get some chance to take some broader looks at some of the other trends and dynamics in our democracy. For right now, kind of just keep focusing and questioning what is the implications of our kind of newly emboldened conservative Supreme Court and begin the guessing game and predictions of what does it mean for the future and what type of wins do we make, need to make in local and state as well as federal elections? What types of policy and advocacy do we need to undertake to protect and preserve our democracy in these shifting times? So questions to leave you with. That's all I have for this week's review of developments in American democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, and I look forward to talking with you again next week in 10 Minutes on Democracy. Take care.